Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Eleanor Shearer about her historical novel, River Sing Me Home. Eleanor is a mixed-race writer and the granddaughter of Windrush Generation immigrants. She splits her time between London and Ramsgate and currently works for a think tank. In this episode, we discuss how she was inspired by the strength of black women in her family starting her research by interviewing families in the Caribbean to focus on the emotional thread of the novel and her strict writing routine of writing 500 words every day, literally every day. But first, here's Eleanor with an excerpt from River Sing Me Home. It was the blackest part of the night and Rachel was running. Branches tore at her skin. Birds screeching took flight at the pounding of her strides. The ground was muddy and uneven, slick with the residue of recent rains, and she slipped, falling hard against the rough bark of a palm tree. She slid down to the soil, to where ants marched and beetles scurried, and unseen worms burrowed through the earth. With ragged breaths, she gulped the heavy, humid air into her lungs. She could taste its dampness on her tongue, tinged with the acidic bite of her own fear. What had she done? She looked behind her. Looming in the darkness was the outline of the mill on Providence Plantation. Its arms splayed out like four sharp-edged daggers, marking an angry cross into the sky. Terror clawed at her throat, as if the mill itself had eyes and could whisper to the overseer what it had seen. It was not too late. She could still climb back over the wall and creep through the fields of half-planted cane, where gaping holes awaited young green stalks. She could return to her hut, one wooden square among many, and lie back on the sleeping mat that was worn thin from forty years of use. She could wait for dawn and another day of labour. Scrambling to her feet, she kept running. Her legs plunged her deeper into the half-formed shadows of the forest. Her chest ached. She wanted to collapse but could not. Her body, unbidden, carried her further and further away from Providence. Every snap of a twig sounded like a gunshot, The murmuring of cane toads became the distant cries of searching men. She must keep running. Hi, Eleanor. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, River Sing Me Home. Thank you for having me. So can you start by introducing your novel and tell us what River Sing Me Home is about? Yes, so River Sing Me Home is set in the Caribbean just after the abolition of slavery. And it's about a woman, Rachel, who's looking for the children that were taken away from her and stolen, uh, taken to different plantations. And we know that there really were women in the Caribbean that made these kinds of journeys, trying to put their families back together again. One of the great crimes of slavery was the way that it tried to destroy people's right to a family life. And uh, when I learned about these, these real life women, I was so inspired by their bravery that I knew I wanted to write about them. Yeah, and your early spark of inspiration came from you visiting an exhibition which was hosted by the Windrush Foundation. And you've written about this in the novel as part of your author's note. But for the benefit of listeners who haven't picked up your book yet, can you explain what was it that kind of called out to you from this exhibition and inspired you to go home and kind of scribble down your ideas? Yeah, so the exhibition was called Making Freedom. And the whole point of it was that in the UK, we often 
tell this story about the abolition of slavery that um, centres white abolitionists like William Wilberforce, and it really doesn't do justice to the agency of enslaved people in the Caribbean who were resisting in ways large and small from kind of everyday acts of resistance through to revolutions like the Haitian Revolution. So the whole point of the exhibition was to say, well, how did people in the Caribbean actually make freedom for themselves and how did they catalyze that process of emancipation? And it was part of this exhibition, they had this little panel explaining that after emancipation, women went and tried to put their families back together again. And I thought that was such a poignant expression of resistance, of refusing to allow slavery to break you and define your life, to have gone through this thing so traumatic in terms of having your children ripped away from you, not seeing them for many, many years, and yet still have the hope and courage to go out and try and find them again. I just thought that was so moving. And um, it was almost 10 years between learning that and then writing the book itself. So it really stuck around in my head for a long time. And I think that the one of the things that kind of held me back for a while was thinking that this would require so much detailed historical research. Um, my my mum's family's from the Caribbean, uh, so I did have the family connection and, you know, I grew up thinking and learning about Caribbean history in a kind of background sense. Um, but it wasn't until completely not thinking about a novel, I ended up doing a master's in the legacy of slavery in the Caribbean, thinking about the case for reparations. And as a result of that, turned around when that was finished and thought, oh, that, that novel idea I've had for ages, all this research I've just done would be really helpful for actually finally writing that. <laughs> Two birds, one stone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to ask you about your research in a minute, but I just wanted to touch back on this personal connection you have with the story as well, because I also read that your grandmother gave you some sort of inspiration. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that as well. Yeah, absolutely. My grandmother, my mother, my step-grandmother, my aunt, I've got all these wonderful black women in my life. And I, another thing that gave me pause about writing this novel, you know, I'm in my 20s, my protagonist is in her 40s, she's a mother of many children. I didn't know how I could imagine myself into the head of someone like that. But I was thinking about these black women that I know and the way that they exist in the world and what has always um, interested me and inspired me about them, the way that they have been through a lot. You know, my grandmother came to the UK as part of the Windrush generation in 1957 and faced a huge amount of racism, hostility. It's such a different place from where she grew up in St. Lucia. I often think about how difficult it must have been for her to be here. But in coming through all that, um, she and um, my step-grandmother and then in my mother's generation as well, they've been through so much and yet they still retain so much love and hope and optimism about um, themselves and about their families. And so wanting to explore a character, my protagonist, Rachel, you know, she has had to adapt to survive. There's no way that these experiences can't leave a mark on you. And it's left her quiet and cautious and watchful in the way that I think my mother and my grandmother were as well. But um, underneath that, there's still so much going on. You know, Rachel is someone that contains multitudes and particularly given there are so many damaging stereotypes about black women. I wanted to have a character that had all of that nuance. You know, I'm not afraid to say Rachel is a strong character but she's not just a strong black woman you know she's also had so much hurt and she has anger within her she has sadness she has um, lots of hope but then she has the ability to regain all those things and go on a journey herself through the novel not just in, in in time and space but actually internally learning to recover parts of herself that she thought might have been lost so that was um the personal connection for me was those women in my family and thinking about um the way they had gone through traumatic experiences and then still emerge out the other side with so much love to give. Yeah, you talk about strength and it's definitely a strength that comes from resilience and survival and and, and kind of just being able to live day to day and carry on, which we see in Rachel's strength. I was wondering kind of on a maybe more practical level, Rachel's based on a, a real woman who went on the search uh, for her daughter, who found her daughter. How did you kind of approach bringing her to life making her your own did you did did she come from the kind of just the writing process or did you spend a long time thinking about her and 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 kind of almost letting her build in your mind before you started writing I think a large part of her came out in the writing process actually it was one of the challenges in redrafting the novel that as I said I think one of her uh, survival mechanisms has been to adopt this quite cautious 
way of existing in the world and it can be difficult on the page for that not to come across as passive and I think in early drafts it perhaps did come across as a bit passive and it was hard to see it's almost she became an absence in the text as she was kind of listening to and watching other characters interact around her and so it was actually about a quarter of the way into the draft there was this scene with another character I think it's often I often find in in drafts when you're struggling a little bit it's often in those relationships it's as a character interacts with another you realize oh okay now I can understand a bit more about them through this dynamic so um Rachel has met this young woman in Bridgetown the capital of Barbados called Hope who is also like Rachel a runaway is also trying to make this new life for herself um after slavery uh but Hope is very kind of unapologetic she comes across as very confident she comes across as really knowing what she wants knowing herself uh knowing what she wants out of life and there's a scene between the two of them where hope is kind of explaining that philosophy to rachel and rachel is uh thinking that she admires that in hope but admires it as if it's something alien that can't ever be her because she's had to survive by letting certainty go by letting little pieces of herself slip away because otherwise the grief for her children would have killed her and that for me was a kind of turning point in seeing okay it's actually an active choice to behave in this way to seem a little bit like you want to wait to have other people act first to wait and see how other people are going to treat you that's actually part of Rachel exercising her agency as part of who she is that she has developed in this way because of what she's been through Mm -hmm. um and I think once I had that and was able to thread that through the novel that was um, quite an important way of grounding her character. Uh, and then it was also about kind of sharpening up the journey that she goes on as well. Um, finding those moments where there were kind of three or four sprinkled through the novel scenes where I thought, okay, this is a real turning point. You're almost seeing Rachel in under pressure in different but related ways. And in each moment, she is more sure of herself than she was before. So perhaps in an early difficult encounter, she shrinks from it and is immediately very afraid and immediately gives up all hope and is sure that everything is lost but then in a new interaction she's able to express a little bit more of herself stand up for herself a bit more and then you get to the end of the novel without giving too much away and she's a she's a much much more sure of herself so um yeah I think it was a it was one of the joys of of working with the novel and wrestling with the drafts is that that process of trying to bring Rachel's character out and make her someone that was uh, fully fleshed out do you see yourself then more as a kind of discovery writer? So you kind of write to find out how your characters are going to react or what your story is really about? Or did you did you start with a... I guess this, this novel has more of a structure in a sense of you knew where you wanted Rachel to be at various points. But do you think that more generally you're a kind of a discovery writer, you write to find out what the story is? I think I... Um sit somewhere in between in that you're right the novel has a structure it's structured around five children that Rachel is trying to find and so when I set out I knew what had happened to each of those five children and where they were and the order in which Rachel would try to find them and so that that sense of where the plot was going was clear from the beginning but I think the discovery comes from as you're saying, how Rachel reacts to each of those situations. I think that was something that took me time to really get into. Uh, but also, um, I one of my favourite things that kind of surprised me about, about the book is um, it's got quite a lot of these secondary characters uh, who come in and out of the novel, often for only a couple of chapters, because Rachel is constantly moving through different places in the Caribbean. And um, I almost wanted the book to have this oral history feel to it, this sense that you're getting, it's, it's almost like a form of testimony that people get to come to the fore and tell their story or a fraction of their story and then recede again. And there's a character in the novel called Nobody, who um, that's a real name. I took most of the names of characters from the uh, slave registers. So there really was an enslaved person at the time called Nobody. And as soon as I saw that name in the document, I knew I had to have a character with that name. And he is a, a sailor who meets Rachel and her daughter on a ship and Initially, he was meant to be one of these side characters, someone who was just in the novel for a couple of chapters, maybe gave them a little bit of help on their journey and then went away. And as I was writing, I thought, I just really like this character. I really <laughs> want him to stick around. So I think I need the the kind of bare bones of a structure to get going. But I really have to give myself that room to be surprised in, in between those bare bones, because that's part of the joy of it for me is uh, allowing yourself those little moments of um a character that just won't go away or, uh, you know, a scene that unfolds in an unexpected direction. 
Mm. I could tell you were going to say nobody when you were saying that. I, I could just feel it from the text that he was oh. one of your favourite characters to write. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your kind of setting building and the way you describe the Caribbean is so vividly drawn. I know you've spent time there yourself, so you have a, a great sense of the place. What was it like then to kind of translate that onto the page? So I imagine uh, being there and and translating that for, for a reader is quite a challenge. So how did you take your readers with you? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's a, a combination of, um, I have models in terms of other writers who really inspire me in the way they write about the natural world. So particularly Annie Prue, the American writer who's written The Shipping News, uh, a novel called Barkskins, which I absolutely adore, which is all about the destruction of the American forests unfolding over generations. And so thinking about, what is it that other writers I admire do when they take you to, often I'm reading about places I've never been before, but what are the ways they engage all of your senses? What are the observations and the texture that they bring that can bring a place to life on the page? Um, but I think in terms of uh, then the Caribbean specifically, um, I've been thinking a lot recently about how this is a, a kind of horrible generalization and it's probably everyone has elements of both, but there are some writers that I really admire, like Zadie Smith would be an example, who can write so wonderfully about a place that they know so intimately um, in a way that I'm not sure that I could. I you know, grew up in London as well, but I don't think I know what to observe or what to tell people about London because it's so familiar to me and I just take granted the way that it feels to be in London. And so the Caribbean for me was kind of the perfect intermediary where I've spent time there and I've spent time there in quite an attentive way because particularly in trips when I've been a bit older, I'm always thinking about how my grandparents made that journey in 1957. And I think when growing up, you know, I understood that they'd moved country, but I didn't understand quite how radical and disorienting and traumatic the, the move must have been because these places are so different and so going back there as an adult I'm incredibly attentive to the ways that the place feels different because I'm almost thinking about that journey in reverse and thinking I'm noticing all these things those are the things that would have been familiar to my grandparents and so they must have really felt the loss of those things when they came over to the UK um, so I think there's a kind of attentiveness to a place that is unfamiliar but also has such an emotional resonance for me that that's why I wanted to work so hard to to bring it to life but also why because I was I was writing this novel during the pandemic so I didn't have the opportunity you know the trips that I made to the Caribbean I didn't make them with the novel in mind so in some ways it was hard to kind of recall exactly how it felt to be in these places but I think I was helped by the fact that whenever I had been there I'd already been paying quite close attention to the way that the place felt um, for all those emotional reasons. Yeah and you said you had this novel in your mind for about 10 years so you were obviously kind of thinking about it in the background all the time whether consciously mm. or not and part of that comes from the master's work that you did mm -hmm. um, and for a novel like yours which has got so much historical detail and almost a responsibility to tell this really important story you have to I guess tread carefully with research and um, include it in a way that is engaging in terms of the story but also is is as factually correct as you can make it so how did you approach that and was that a particular pressure that you felt writing this novel to get that element right? I think because of the way that my research unfolded, I I did feel pressure. And I think anyone who writes historical fiction does feel exactly the pressure that you just described. But um, the, the way that my master's research unfolded, so I was doing political theory, which is um, often quite a kind of abstract academic field of study. And I knew going in that I wanted to um, look at the case for reparations and the legacy of slavery in the Caribbean. And my initial research plan had been to do that in this quite abstract way, engaging with other academics that had written about it. And then um, it was actually in talking to a kind of senior academic at my university who worked on historical injustice. And he just had this throwaway line where he said, there's probably something quite colonial about me sitting here in a university in Britain telling people who are victims of historical injustice how they should feel. And I thought, that is so true. Um, so that's what then led me to do this field work where I wanted to centre the testimony of the people who were affected. I wanted to go out and I interviewed family in the Caribbean. I interviewed reparations activists. I interviewed historians because I wanted to get a sense of how they felt about this history. So I guess that kind of 
almost emotional responsibility of wanting to honor the way that people in a place feel and obviously the Caribbean is vast and diverse and I can never claim to have represented everybody in this book but because I didn't start with the kind of texts and sitting in by myself with a history book I started with going out to people finding out which parts of the history resonated with them what did they remember you know the fact that one of my mother's cousins was so proud to talk about how our family lived on land that was used by runaway slaves. So knowing that that history of running away, that history of resistance was important. Um, the fact that people spoke to me a lot and I felt myself the the echo of family fragmentation. You know, my, my grandfather um, was born in Barbados and then moved to St. Lucia when he was 14. And that's where he met my grandmother. And then they came to the UK, but he never really spoke to his family in Barbados again. And his mother died in Barbados thinking that he must have died in England because why else would he not write to her? So, uh, and actually when I went out to the Caribbean and did my research, I got to meet his uh, one surviving sister who's now in her nineties. So um, that, was also a kind of an emotional thread running through the research. So I guess for me, the almost some of the factual stuff almost came later. It was kind of as I was drafting this book, the emotional shape of which was quite clear in my head because of this research that I'd done. Then I was going to, you know, texts about the history of Trinidad or the history of Barbados to find out, okay, well, looking at old maps saying, okay, well, which, which, what did Bridgetown look like? Where would this, this um, character Rachel meets have, meets have met, have lived, that kind of thing. Um, it almost felt like the facts were filling in the little gaps or the icing on top, whereas um, the, the meat of the research was always quite emotional and quite, um, bound up with this tradition of kind of oral history and what gets passed down and what is it people feel is important to be remembered and celebrated about the past um so I think that helped me a lot because I didn't feel as strong a sense I think as I could have done about this real agonizing over how do you represent the past fairly and how do you do justice to the history because um yeah I felt like I just had so much help had so many conversations with people on exactly that question in the Caribbean that it set me up quite well to write the novel and do you think that would be your advice for anyone working on historical fiction to kind of think of the emotion before the fact rather than kind of making sure that you, you mean you're not writing a history textbook, you're writing a novel? Would that be kind of your your general advice to people? Yeah, I think so. I think that um, I almost feel like I wear two hats because, you know, I studied history as an undergraduate. So and for me, that kind of academic mode of thinking and writing feels completely distinct to writing fiction. And sometimes, uh, you know, i now working on a second project I can feel myself almost falling down a historian rabbit hole where I start getting into agonizing about you know some historians argue this other historians argue this you know the past is always contested oh my goodness all these facts the kind of grand sweep of everything all events out there you could represent and how do you pick and choose between them and when I get in that kind of mode I just have to think what does the story need I have to strip it down to what's the story I want to tell what's the most compelling story and the history and the facts are in service of that story and not the other way around so yeah absolutely the emotion and the story is at the heart of what you want to write as a historical novelist and um, then let the facts kind of illuminate that and um, enrich it but don't uh, worry about feeling like you need the facts to be there right from the get-go. Yeah. And I've had so many historical fiction writers say to me, look, you're going to get something wrong. So just don't yeah. worry about it. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about your personal connections to the novel and, and the research you did, which has such um, emotion behind it. How do you then, as the writer and as someone really delving deep into your character's emotions, how do you kind of look after yourself during the writing process? I know that I've spoken to other author authors who have written um, about subjects that are incredibly personal or painful and it can you know writing can bring up a lot of stuff when you're when you're sitting there alone with your keyboard and you're trying to work out what your characters are thinking and feeling so how did you look after yourself during the writing process um it's a great question I think for me actually a lot of the looking after came right from the outset from the premise of what I was doing because I knew myself well enough and I knew what I emotionally couldn't could or couldn't handle to know that I couldn't write a novel about slavery that was fully engaged with and representing on the page all of the horrors of what happened um I have a huge amount of respect for art that does that um I think often that art 
serves a purpose to educate people who aren't aware of what slavery was really like. But for those of us who are descended from enslaved people who have spent time reflecting on what our ancestors would have gone through, I don't think we need to see that. You know, we don't need to um, necessarily read it to understand. And so I was clear from the beginning that I wanted this to be a novel about what comes after slavery. And that's not to say that it shies away from the violence of what happened, but often that violence is not represented directly. It's alluded to its um, characters can understand with a look or a touch the common history that they share of that trauma. So I think a big part of making this a manageable project for me was was making that creative decision at the outset. And then I think as a result, a lot of writing the book felt quite um, cathartic almost or healing because it did really feel like I was getting to tell a story of of hope and something that was uplifting and something that moved beyond just the trauma to show about what is still possible after it um so that helped a lot and then I guess the other thing is I was um writing my process which I strict to religiously although I love meeting other writers talking to other writers everyone has a process that sounds to you completely barbaric and you're like I could never write a novel that way um so this is mine and I don't necessarily advocated for anyone else um I wrote 500 words every day um and I mean every day without taking a day off I had this weird thing of assuming that I would just lose all momentum if I even allowed myself a single day when I was you know ill or exhausted or anything like that so I was writing every day but in these quite small chunks and so I think that meant that even where I reached scenes because there were scenes in the novel that were hard to write were emotional or made me feel very deeply for the characters it was always in quite a small chunk and then I was able to walk away and then almost let the rest of the scene sit in my mind before I had to return to it. So I think that kind of little and often approach helped as well in terms of being able to manage any emotions that came up while I was drafting. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. I'm going to have to ask you more about this 500 a day business. Did you, I mean, how strict were you? Were there, were there some days where you felt compelled to write more? Did you stop yourself mm. or did you, uh, yeah? No, so I, I did write more and it was it was very odd because um, I would kind of fetishize the exact, you know, 500 or 1,000 marks. So what that meant was on a day where I, I might write 750 words and that means that the next day I only have to write 250 and I could stop at the next thousand if I wanted to, but often you naturally go go on a little bit anyway. And so that really was my way of, if I had, say I was looking at the next 
next day and I thought I'm gonna have absolutely no time I would actually write 900 words or something and then still just write 100 the next day but if I was really in a flow and got to that thousand mark then the next day I would have to write 500 I couldn't like take the next day off having done my 500 the previous day so it was very I think it was the philosophy behind it was really doing a bit every day um and the 500 was quite a useful target I'm quite I think output rather than time oriented. I know some writers who set aside, you know, an hour a day, half an hour a day. For me, I, it's probably a bit um, self-flagellating, but I quite liked the way that it kind of went as well or badly as you were motivated to do it. So I'd be sitting there, you know, having been there for hours, you know, checking Twitter, <laughs> writing 10 words at a time. And I was like, it's, you've only got yourself to blame that you haven't done this yet. Whereas on a good day, you could write 500 words in 20 minutes and then be be able to get on with the rest of your life. So I, I like the fact that it expanded or contracted depending on how productive I was. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say 500 is quite manageable, but you're right. There are some days where 500 is not manageable and you can only manage about 50. So um, <laughs> I, I can see your pain on some days. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's a nice idea because I think there are some days where it's you know you really don't want to or you really just don't feel like you've got it in you but getting getting something down is is the best thing you can do rather mm. than just kind of despairing about how how your progress <laughs> is going i'm wondering whether you're you know you've got the same technique for what you're working on at the moment or is it has it changed a bit no it's still the same and uh, the only thing that's changed is i'm a little bit more forgiving in terms of understanding that if i'm really sick taking one day off it really was, I didn't believe that I would be able to finish if I lost any momentum on the first book. Whereas now I have finished a book length draft before mm. and I know that it was, I enjoyed doing it. So I know that taking one day off will not be the end of the project. Um, but I'm still, you know, I, I actually feel almost antsy the times when I'm not doing my little 500 words a day. It becomes such a routine and a kind of folded into the rest of my life that I um, I really enjoy the point. I'm, I'm currently right on the tipping point we spoke earlier about this kind of um where how do you know if you've done enough research or when might be too much research I feel like I've been researching this new project and right at the tipping point where I can't quite start writing but I almost can and I think at some point in the next few weeks and I'm, I'm really itching to get going I really want to start just um doing those little 500 words every day because it's such a I feel like um I work part-time um so fitting it around my work it's kind of I just don't like that things like research, reading books, it's so much harder to come up with a clearly defined mm. target for each day. So, you know, is, is it reading a chapter a day or is it trying to just do an hour or what do you do? I've never quite got it right um, on the research side or actually on the editing side. I find that becomes a bit harder to do around a job as well. And again, have those kind of manageable targets, but 500 words. I know what I'm getting. I know, I know um, I'm ready. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back into it. <laughs> So I was wondering then about this um, this idea that came to you 10 years ago and you carried it around with you. How did you how did you know it was something special? How did you kind of have that or was it instinctive that you just thought I'm going to write it whether it becomes special or not? Or had you kind of attempted to write novels before? That's such a great question. I think um on one level, it was very instinctive because as soon as I saw that little panel in the exhibition, I thought, what an incredible story. I think I was just so moved by the bravery of the women. And I guess in a in a sense, possibly subconsciously, I was it, it's almost a, a kind of commercial consideration in the sense of I think the strength of the novel is that within a sentence you can convey quite a lot about what it what it is that kind of hook or premise so just saying you know after slavery a mother is looking for her children that certainly for me that idea immediately got me immediately made me mm -hmm. feel something and so um I guess part of why it stuck around was knowing that it had that that hook to it that would hopefully expand out into a into a wider story um and I did I certainly did experiment with um writing some other things short stories novels and nothing quite gripped me as much as this this idea and I suppose the moment where I realized when I started writing it I was constantly terrified I would write every idea I had and end up with something like 10,000 words which is just nothing what, what can you do with something of that length um but once I had a structure in mind that I felt could support a book length project and um 
had started writing and kind of got a feel for okay if I've written about this much and got to about here in the story I have in my head this is going to actually end up being being book length um so yeah there was a kind of development and it took time to realize that this was going to be something that could sustain a whole book but I think right from the very beginning the idea of there being something so compelling in the fact that women really did do this and make these journeys and how much that moved me I just hoped it would move others as well and how did you come to get your agent and book deal tell us that story yes um so I finished uh, I took about nine months to write my draft and then I was quite fortunate because uh, I was part of this writing group it was a friend from university who um, for some reason being very attentive to me and my interests even though I was not seriously thinking about being a writer when I was at university she wrote a book um, was in the process of editing it and said oh I remember you you're really literary would you read this and tell me what you think and then I think I sent her some short stories and we straight set up this um conversation and then she ended up inviting another acquaintance of hers and we formed this group uh, during the pandemic we met online every two weeks and now have been we've been going for three years and still every two weeks virtually because we're all in different places but it's just such a wonderful wonderful group um but that friend uh had said to me you know my agent would be happy to have a look at what you have and then I am also very lucky I come from quite a creative family and um my godmother's actually a writer as well so she had also said you know if you want to send something to my agent so I had quite a small initial list of those two agents um who I had a kind of connection with and then a few that I'd found just from the usual channels of looking in acknowledgements of books that I really enjoyed or writers that I admired um so I sent it out to that small list and then I was lucky that a couple of them expressed interest and I met them and I made my decision went with my current agent who is wonderful and um did a little bit of work on the book uh with her and then we sent it out and um, I I am someone, I am a quite type A person and I love information. I love data. I love moment to moment. And obviously a lot of writing is about, and publishing in particular is about letting go of control and understanding that you can't have minute to minute updates about things like the submissions process. So the way that I... Um, dealt with that anxiety is I I am a huge a huge advocate for the deep dive of like I've read probably every blog there is out there on you know how to survive submissions or how to get an agent I really consume all information um but one thing I know a lot so this is quite dark a lot of people talk about how you know the email comes through when you least expect it like oh you'll be obsessing you'll be checking your inbox all the time and it's the moment you finally get distracted that you actually get the email and for me it, it was unfortunately incredibly darkly true because um back in May which is when I got my book deal uh, my uncle sadly passed away and I remember very clearly it was two moments because I had been obsessing and you know completely distracted from the rest of my life about this book deal and then it was literally I got the call I had been in London I was on the train platform to go back to um, Ramsgate to see my dad and kind of look after my family and that was when I got the email saying that my publisher wanted to arrange a chat and then it was on the drive back from the funeral a couple of weeks later that I got the email saying that uh, they wanted to make an offer. So, yeah, I kind of took to the extreme of that that uh, that truism that it, it it really does come when you least expect it. Yeah, I mean, I always like to quiz people about their agent and their book deal stories because there's so many different stories and, and people who wait a long time maybe to get an agent or get a book deal and then other people who happens almost seemingly overnight I mean we always hear these stories of kind of overnight success and it's it's never as straightforward as that because people have been silently working away for mm -hmm. six years or five years behind the scenes so I'm always fascinated to hear I was wondering then if you could share with us a little bit more about your writing process we've heard about your 500 words a day but is there an element of the writing process that you personally find very challenging and how do you kind of overcome that if there's a day where you're having a really tough day on a particular element of writing what is what is that and how do you get over it yeah a great question I think two things immediately spring to mind one is um just on a kind of macro level it's an emotional roller coaster and I think what's been funny is um now knowing what I do about how because I also write in order I start at the beginning and I write through to the end of a draft I know writers who um will write you know whatever scene they want to and then stitch it together and again to me that seems I could never finish a book that way but each to their own and um so I know that for me the first 10,000 words will feel exciting your you know a new idea how wonderful how great and then 
that kind of from about 10 20,000 words almost through to about 60,000 words so a good chunk of it it will often feel like the worst thing that's ever been written you'll be like there's no plot the characters are awful this isn't going anywhere this is hopeless that's also for me when I usually get an idea for a new book as well I'll suddenly have this shiny new idea buzzing around in my head that will feel very exciting and enticing and I think maybe I should just give up and I think the two things that helped me is number one, knowing that that emotional rollercoaster was kind of inevitable and just being able to push through it. But in number two, in particular, I am, um, I'm a big advocate for when you solicit feedback from whoever it is in your life, whether it's a kind of writer friend or a family member or someone whose opinion you trust, just being clear about what you want and need from that feedback. So my uh, younger sibling, um, bless them, has uh, inadvertently signed up for a lifetime now of doing this this for me with my <laughs> my projects. But I had ten thousand words, and I said to them, "Look, I have now you know done this enough in terms of writing other things, short stories, whatever it is. I think I am a good writer." I just don't know if this is the right book for me. So I, what I want you to do is I want you to read this 10,000 words and just tell me, is it worth keeping going with this or should I try something else? And they read it and they said, it's worth keeping going. And that was it. That was all I needed from them. I didn't need, you know, specific praise. I didn't need constructive criticism. I just needed to keep going. And so that again, helped me when I felt like someone has read this and someone has told me keep going. Um, and now I know that in future, I'm going to, you know, pull that lever again. And um, whether it's still my sibling, whether it's my agent, having someone who you can just say, all I need you to tell me is keep going. Or, or, but be honest, you know, maybe I have started off on a slightly dead end idea and you think my talents would be better used elsewhere. Um, so that's the emotional rollercoaster side of things. And then in terms of the day to day, I have another writer friend who also writes to a word count and she says something interesting once about how she thinks that the thing you default to on the days where the, you're really grinding the words out, it's like drawing blood from a stone, is um is the thing that you kind of find most exciting or naturally most capable at as a writer. So for her, it's dialogue. She can write whole scenes, no dialogue tags, no description, just almost like a screenplay kind of back and forth between characters and as she's writing you know she knows she'll have to come back and edit that on the page and fill in what's missing but it enables her to hit her word count mm. and for me it's kind of plot and story so I had days where the words were not coming and the kind of textured descriptions of the Caribbean landscape were not coming so I would have these 500 words that would be like Rachel got up she <laughs> went to town and bought a canoe later in the day they went to the river they put the canoe on the river and they started paddling because I was like, I just need her to get from A to B and then I can come back later and figure out a way to make it sound flowery. <laughs> um, but then interestingly, the thing that I found is that you are not the best judge of your work in the moment, I think. And the days where I thought I was doing really well and the prose was flowing and flowery are often the days you come back in editing and you have to cut 90% of it because it's just overwritten and awful. Whereas the days that are sparse and functional, I don't know, I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of functional prose. I love a, a kind of sparse sentence, an ordinary sentence now and then to break up the flow. And so actually there was something functionally beautiful in the days that I thought were bad. Um, so that helps me as well. It's why it underpins my kind of philosophy of not looking back and not tinkering while I'm going because I just know that whatever I'm feeling about the writing in the moment it's the same with that kind of overarching emotional arc of thinking this is the worst thing that's ever been written when you're 30,000 words in. I know that I'm not the best judge of myself in that moment and I just have to get to the end and then I can take stock. <laughs> I love what you said about a functional sentence. I had some writing advice once that was just like, Chloe, you know, sometimes you just have to write. She sat on a chair. Yeah. You don't have to worry about anything else. And it's so, so true. true. I think so often we'll agonise over, you know, a description or, a, you know, we'll sit there thinking, surely there's got to be something better I can write than this but you know what sometimes going and buying a canoe is all you need yeah exactly so speaking of ups and downs your the reception to um, your novel has been fantastic and I was wondering kind of I know it's early days for you in terms of your kind of publishing journey but um, has there been anything that's been surprising or challenging in your route to publication and how have you dealt with the kind of ups and downs of of being published so definitely the most challenging thing is constantly moving goalposts um which I'm sure many writers can relate to it's the fact that I didn't always give myself permission to celebrate 
big milestones because I was already thinking about the next thing you know I finished a draft or an achievement but immediately I wanted to get an agent I got an agent immediately I need to get a book deal I've got a book deal okay brilliant now the book needs to sell really well um or you know get xyz specific um accolades and it's uh taken me time but I think I'm quite proud of being able now to slow down a bit more and actually appreciate each piece of good news as it comes in um but the other thing that I think was part of that learning experience and part of kind of grounding myself through all this was separating out um the the parts of the process that I can be proud of kind of regardless of outcome versus the stuff that is tied to particular outcomes that are ultimately beyond my control um and if I can tell a slightly slightly random anecdote uh, a lot of this was rooted in um I did a lot of rowing at university um I was in the Oxford women's team I was in the boat race um against Cambridge three years in a row I lost every year and uh, I was actually president in my last year and a big reason I wanted to be president in last year was because I knew that the outcome of the race was not in my control even being selected to to be in the race was not within my control but actually I wanted something where at the end of the year I was like no one could take that away from me I would have done the presidency I would have led the team and I could be proud of that regardless of what happens and actually it worked very well because I now look back on that year very fondly even though we did still lose again and I think being honest with myself that just like the rowing you know with the writing when you have disappointments when there are things that you want that you don't get it is going to hurt and you can't ever I think insulate yourself fully from those things that are outside of your control but always bringing it back to you know um I finished a book and it's a book I'm really proud of or um you know Stephen King in on writing his book about craft talks about having your ideal reader for me it was my mum you know when my mum read the book the fact that my mum has read this book and liked it that is such a source of pride to me the, the rest of my family as well my dad my sibling it's such a source of pride to me that I can come back to that and then when it comes to the book being out in the world it's so easy to you know I am someone who loves data and information it is so easy to obsess about numbers but just something as small as, you know, I've had a couple of uh, messages from readers, whether through my agent forwarding me an email or someone reaching out to me on social media, just explaining that the book has touched them in a particular way and trying to think of it more qualitatively than quantitatively. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how many units the book has sold. Isn't it incredible that I've published this thing that already some people have read and it has had an emotional effect on them. So yeah, I think that has been my approach to the ups and the downs is to try and always bring it back to there's something at the center of this which is a book that no one can take away from the achievement of having written and it's important I think uh if you are a debut novelist to come back to that when it all feels very turbulent and uncertain because that is yeah that's the thing from which everything else will flow and you can't forget that that is an amazing achievement mm, that's great advice I mean everyone I've spoken to people who have sold you know thousands of copies or people who haven't sold as many as they'd hoped to the one thing that everyone seems to have in common is that there will be one review or one person mm. that has contacted them and said this book has been my favorite this year or this book has really touched me or moved me or made me laugh or whatever it is and I think it's so easy to forget that that's a real person that's come and bought your book and has loved it and you know if you think about like you said about the shifting goalposts if you if you kind of go back in time 10-15 years ago and say to your former self you know someone's bought your book and they loved it and it's their favorite book of the year you know you'd be you'd be hard-pressed to believe it but I think like mm. you say it's so easy for those goals to change but it's so important to remember and treasure those kind of really special um those special moments you have particularly with your readers yeah so finally I, I know you've just sort of started the the kind of thinking and the writing process the research is there anything you can tell us or tease us about what you're working <laughs> on next yes I can so uh I um have just been in Nova Scotia doing research tricks that's where it's going to be set in Canada and it comes also out of this kernel of a, a kind of real story that uh, surprised and intrigued me when I came across it. I was reading this book about um, the abolition of slavery in the British Empire and came across the story of the Jamaica Maroons. So these were these communities of runaways in Jamaica that had this uh, semi-autonomous status. They'd actually signed this treaty with the British that recognised them as free and they couldn't be re-enslaved. But in exchange... Uh, they often acted as, you know, um, they supported the British militarily, they would capture and return runaway slaves to plantations, they kind of became complicit in the system as an exchange for their own freedom. And a group of them got deported to Nova Scotia in the 1790s. And 
I think probably I was intrigued by this for two reasons. One is historical and one is personal. So historically, I always love books that draw together different places at a point in time, because I think we learn history in these ways that are very siloed. And you think about British history and you think about French history, you think about American history, you think about Caribbean history. And everyone, I think, has had one of those moments of surprise, like when you realise that, I don't know, a particular Aztec king lived at the same time as Henry VIII or whatever. You just think of these things as completely distinct. And actually, there would have been people that would have met both of those people or something. Um, so the idea of drawing together Nova Scotia and Jamaica was so exciting to me. And actually, there's a thread that then um, a lot of these people went on to Sierra Leone and were part of the founding of Freetown there as well. So there's this huge kind of diasporic connection of... Um, formerly enslaved black people in all these different locations. Um, but then the personal connection, I think it comes back to that fascination with the journey that my grandparents made. You know, you can't think of two places more different than Jamaica and Nova Scotia. And the contrast between St. Lucia and Britain isn't as acute, but it's that thing of going from an environment that is warm, that is tropical to one that is very cold. You know, things like my grandparents never having encountered fog before they came to the UK. I feel like I have this, this trove of sort of, feelings and uh, emotional reactions to that thought of that sort of journey that that's what drew me in so I'm going to be writing about the maroons of Jamaica ending up in Nova Scotia and how they try to build a new life for themselves in this frozen wilderness well it sounds like you're itching to go away and write your 500 <laughs> words Eleanor thank you so much for joining on the podcast today thank you for having me it's been so delightful that was Eleanor Shearer talking about her historical novel River Sing Me Home, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.